Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register before March 11th at ndc-oslo.com and save up to $350. That's 3,000 kroner for you Norwegians. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1267, with guest Jeffrey Palermo. Recorded Thursday, February 18th, 2016. Another thing, it's .NET Rocks. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. <laughs> and this is Richard Campbell. <laughs> and uh, we're on opposite coasts of this here North American continent. And uh, Jeff Palermo is going to be joining us from Austin in just a few minutes. But stick around for that. We're going to be talking Azure Continuous Delivery. Richard, uh, the only thing going on in my life recently, besides actually, there's a lot of stuff going on. I'm doing this uh, ketogenic diet that I told you about. Yep. Yeah, down yep. down quite a bit, and my numbers are down, and it's been about three weeks now. And nice. uh, Richard Morris and I started doing a podcast about this diet at um, twoketodudes.com. That's the number two. Love it. Yeah. So, and th there's links to science and studies and all sorts of great stuff about there. So, if you're serious about it, and this is for people who are, you know, significantly overweight with type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome, that kind of stuff. It's a corrective diet for that. That's about enough of that. Uh, you're still digging out from under the flood, I take it. Oh, yeah. You know, the rooms are clean. Pieces are being put back in. You know, uh, I look at seven rooms needing to be rebuilt as a renovation opportunity. So, yeah. We, right. We've, uh, you know, made some plans, made some changes, having some fun with it. I'll, I will have, I'm probably going to have a whole geek out around it before we're done. That sounds fun. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Well, and, and my thinking, I think, for most people is a little bizarre on how I tackle problems like this and and the deliberate experiments I'm doing to my house. All right, then. Looking forward to that. Hey, let's roll the crazy music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, you know, the reactive extensions have taken off, taken over the world. Yeah, and uh, you, on just about every platform now, you have some sort of some flavor of RX. But there's a, a really cool site for visualizing and learning about these functions on observables, at, and it's at rxmarbles.com. Marbles. Rxmarbles.com. I love it. Interactive diagrams of RX observables, and there's just about <laughs> every marble. function. Yeah, there's just about every function in the world there. And you can just click on them and then play with the marbles and you move them around and you move one marble on the first line and marbles, things move around on the second line. Interesting. So it's it's kind of an interactive, uh, that's exactly what it is, an interactive diagram show you how these functions work conceptually. That's really interesting. Isn't it cool? Just a way to understand it. I presume all written in JavaScript because there is Rx for JavaScript. Absolutely. That's really neat. That's what I got, man. And uh, thanks to Steve Strong from AppVNext. He told me about that. So thanks, Steve. 
Good one. Shout out to you. All right. Who's talking to us, Richard? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1049, the one we did with one Jeff Palermo. We talked about doing Greenfield right. Everybody's best dream, right? Mm. Get a Greenfield project. So, you know, let's make it happen. What's the right things to do? I thought I really enjoyed that show. It was good fun. Uh, about a year ago, and uh, this comment comes from around that time. It's from Liam Burke, who says, this was a great show, but it deals in hypothetical perfection. Hmm. I don't know if that's true, but most software companies just don't work that way, especially here in the UK. When it comes to Greenfield, the best you can hope for, in my experience, is a manager or internal customer that appreciates that software is hard and it takes time to get it right. I've worked on Greenfield products that very quickly become a ball of mud through no fault of the developers. Getting buy-in for good architecture and getting management to understand why we need it is the big challenge. Mm -hmm. I have recently moved from a company with the thick end of a thousand projects across three VS solutions with an architecture team of one with a Greenfield, that's less than three months product, with 130 projects across 20 solution without the architecture team. And we are already questioning the architecture as a team and changing it. As well you should. Yes. Well, you know, <laughs> you learn about your software as you go in some respects. It's very hard to dictate architecture off the top. Yeah. This new company has an excellent team of developers and business guys, but the nature of the business means that the higher up the chain you travel, the less knowledge of technology people have. And the development managers worked hard to stop the just get it done attitude from creeping in. And the more dangerous they become. Yeah. <laughs> Greenfield is all well and good, and that blank screen feeling is nice, but developers need direction, and good management is the hardest thing to come by. Developers are easy to find. Good developers are harder to find, especially with the right experience. Good development team leaders, not just technical leads, almost impossible to find with the experience, knowledge, soft skills, and the vision and drive to succeed. Oh, they exist. They're just really, really busy. Yeah. It is all about the team leader when it comes to make or break on a Greenfield product. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it depends on the organization. You know, I've worked with so many great teams now that you know, we've had the luxury of tackling Greenfields the right way. But, it, you know, the great, the great thing about a Greenfield is it doesn't take very long to turn it into a brownfield. Well, you know, green, brown, doesn't matter. I mean, if you have a dysfunctional team, you've got a dysfunctional company. So, yep, you're going to have problems. Just because you started over doesn't mean that you, you fixed all the problems. Yeah. So, Liam, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We uh, play ping pong with him. And now it's time to introduce Jeff Palermo. He's been on the show many, 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 many times, going back many, 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 many years. Uh, Jeff is a managing partner and CEO at Clear Measure Incorporated. He's been recognized by Microsoft as an MVP, Microsoft Most Valuable Professional, since 2006. Welcome back, Jeffrey. Hey, Carl. Hey, Richard. Great to be back. Great to be back. Long way from driving a truck in Iraq, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first show <laughs> called from Iraq. That was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. That was before the days. I think Skype was just getting started. and mm -hmm. I was using Net2Phone and Dialpad to figure out how to call my wife back in the States because there were little internet, internet cafes that you could pay, but you couldn't find a telephone. You were actually deployed in Iraq, and you were listening to the show over there, and you had set up a member. You said you set up a LAN for your buddies 
and uh, and you would listen to the show, and then you called called in when we had live callers, and we did that for right. I don't know fifty shows or so. It, Back when we right, were ambitious. It was the tail. It was the tail end of the deployment. We were actually getting ready to come home, so I was. We had moved across the border into Kuwait, and so it just the timing lined up, and I can't believe that I was actually <laughs> able to do that. But uh, yeah, that was fun. War fun, yeah. No, .NET rocks fun. War bad. Hey, uh, we're talking about Azure continuous delivery. So we've done. Uh, you know, we talked about continuous delivery from now until the cows came home. But uh, in Azure, that's a sort of a special thing. And you guys have put something together to make that work. Right, right. And I, I tend to, I tend to try to make things simple and help people out. If, if I mean, first of all, it, without it, we would have a harder time functioning as a company. So doing it for ourselves. And then I always like to share what we do internally with the outside world just to help other people get better. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the continuous delivery theme is really an extension of, of what we've talked about for a long time, because if you look at the agile manifesto.org working software over comprehensive documentation is one of those agile values. And then if you click over to the 12 principles of agile, the very first principle literally has the words continuous delivery in it hmm. right so continuous delivery has been a theme and, and the notion of we need to continuously deliver business value yeah. and technically the industry has been figuring out okay how do we do that and for a long shoot for 15 years uh, the most people the average person would do is let me try to get this thing deployed on a test environment so that I can demo it, so that I can get continuously demoing. <laughs> Continuous <laughs> demoing. <laughs> yeah, but and it'll be a while before before it's normal to continuously deliver to production. But mm. people are just struggling trying to have a stable demo environment consistently. Yeah, yeah my, I guess my question is, how often is continuous? Mm. Right. So... Every business moves at a different, that's a good question, Richard. Every business moves at a different pace. And what you want, Nirvana, is for the technology to keep up with the pace of business. The business should never hmm. be waiting on technology. And, and that's really what the goal is. If we think about these big IT departments in some cases that have ha cropped up a lot of bureaucracy and now the business is beholden to an IT schedule and they're frustrated, uh, you, want, you want technology that serves the business, not the business having to accommodate the technology. So every business is going to have a different cycle, a different pace, but the technology needs to align with whatever that business cycle is, whatever that business pace is. So that the so that the people making the sales and delivering the service of the product, they can focus completely on the customers and doing what they want to do and know that the technology is helping them do their job, enabling them and backing them up and just fitting in with whatever that business is. So by that argument, if a customer is waiting for a feature, then we're behind as developers. Totally. There's an art form, isn't there, to to how you schedule releases and how you make incremental changes so that they don't hurt, you know, so that somebody aren't, right. isn't confused moving things around too much or uh, making drastic changes isn't, isn't a good idea in general. Yeah, but, but when you have this continuous delivery system in place, you still have to be careful about how, uh, you know, how iterative you are. You're right. You're right. I think there are two, we can, we can 
separate the topic into one that I don't ever think will be automated or will be the domain of the machine to do, and that is how do we how do we provide a really intuitive user interface so that we don't have to make our users think or we don't have to do a whole lot of training. The whole product management thought process of designing the interaction with the human, yeah. I, I think that's always going to be the realm of, okay, let's have some humans make a judgment call and experience and what's going to work. And, and then there's the other side of, okay, how do I even make this possible? Yeah. How do we organize all the technical bits and bytes so that we can flow th- so that we're capable yeah. of flowing through a change at the speed that the business operates separate from is this change going to work for what we want it to do right and let's be honest a lot of times this isn't you know adding new features a lot of times con- the continuous delivery system is great for quick fix engineering isn't it for you know the customer says oh they discovered an obscure problem with some data or some bugs or something like that that just happen to, you know, if you do this crazy sequence in the in the app, oh, it blows up. We have to fix that right away. You're totally right. And, and, and the notion of continuous delivery, and you hear Spotify and Netflix and Facebook, like the big people with a lot of money that have a gajillion developers, right. they say, oh, well, we deploy this number of times a day. Well, you know, clap, clap, clap. Great for you. <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, the, the average company is never going to do that. Yeah. Now, right. so, so but, however, however, that doesn't mean that the average company is content with one release every six months. That's yeah. it's just insane, it's right? A good we goal. Need, yeah, I mean, thirty-four times a day. No, okay, whatever. Not going to do that for the the average company that needs custom software. Now, for smaller companies, smaller companies aren't doing custom software anyway. Custom software is expensive. They're doing software products. You got to be, right. you know, good a good medium sized organization to essentially grow out of the commodity off the shelf products and develop a unique capability that where in order to compete in your marketplace you need custom business software but once you're in that space you know a lot of some of our clients say you know what i need to be able to get something into production uh twice a week one of our clients says no 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 Every two weeks, every two weeks is our cycle. We have meetings with business leaders and whatnot. That's our cycle. Every two weeks is what we want. Mm. And so it just depends on what the business wants because they have their own cycle of management and strategizing with their market and their customers and what should we do next. So it really, the business dictates it, but we should never be holding them back and, and saying, well, it's going to take this long and test cycle this and configuration that and lead time for servers. So every three months we can do it. And they're like, really? I have to wait three months? So we just have to keep up with the business. But it's not 34 deploys a day for most businesses. At the same time, aren't we conjoining two different concepts here? I mean, the implication of, you know, deploying every hour is a new feature was built every hour. Well, that's a good point. When we have back in the days of, of waterfall or big releases or even or even Scrum's original monthly sprints, where you had you know some list of features that was going to be released all at one time, and you had to get it right because it was a big release. And we'll, we need to talk about the difference in a release and a deploy because they're different. But as we do a release more frequently, the size of the release is smaller, therefore the risk right. is smaller. So how does Azure help with uh, and 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 how is it different? You know, do, even doing something in the cloud whether it's Azure or something else, how is 
continuous delivery in the cloud a particular challenge? Well, rather than being a challenge, I I think it's an opportunity. I think it makes makes it easier because, oh, especially with the new Azure Resource Manager, um, rather than the the classic resources, because now we can define our resources with code, with JSON code, instead of uh, just you know PowerShell API calls or even clicking around the portal. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, coming from okay, we had on Metal, then we had then we had VMware and Hyper V, um, and that was good, except. We had some, you know, some limited sort of capacity, and we didn't have the programmability. And now um, with with Azure, and I'll, I'll lump in Azure and AWS together because you know those really are the two big platforms. We we prefer Azure because um, it just it's Microsoft platform integration. We're a Microsoft platform shop. That's what we are. So while we do have some systems in AWS, uh, our our focus is on Azure and being able to spin something up whether it's a VM or whether it's a website or whether it's a SQL database or, or any service and just having it up and running um, as much as it might be cool to talk about the platform as a service um, we're still doing tons of VMs and I think a lot of a lot of businesses are still are still on VMs they're still in the world where yeah. okay we de- we design everything to be run on servers and so now the cloud represents a way to make servers really mm-hmm. really really easy mm-hmm. even to the point where i can identify a network range and then and then it's a separate concept from putting in place a dns routable name attached to that ip address mm. and then ports and everything um so it just makes it makes servers really really easy and i got to say most of what we do is still is still vms but azure is just picking apart the different concepts so that we don't have to worry about so many things that we had to all at once when talking about this thing that was a server when uh, like jeffrey snover the the concept of I named everyone, and I care and fed for everyone. And I treated them as pets. Right. And now, instead, it's now in the U.S. We think nothing of saying we treat them as cattle, and mm-hmm. when they're done, <laughs> we dispose. We eat them. them. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Make them into burgers. That's right. But and and that's the big thing I find. Even when you just you know, we, admittedly, we, you know, we're making fun of the VM level of cloud, like you're only using the basics. But that basic ability to never upgrade. Yeah. To just build another copy of your entire site by launching a new set of, of VMs in the cloud, test it, tinker with it, get it exactly the way you like, then switch the DNS over. So that's now the site. Turn off the old one. They're gone. Hmm. Well, and I think that the the infrastructure as code dream on the Microsoft platform, while some have implemented it, it still requires a lot of custom work to yeah. get the get the whole infrastructure as code dream and we do have that in a couple of places but it, it, you don't we don't get it for free yet with azure i think the resource no. manager is a big step in that direction where we can define the definition of it with json uh, but we still need we still need advancements in the tooling for once we do have a, a, a particular server what are we going to have installed on it and you know powershell desired state configuration uh, gets us partially the way there, but um, we really need this concept. We need a concept of environment of source controlled environment migrations, and you know, Puppet and Chef and 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 there. I think those are good point solutions, but I think the ultimate is going to be what has ultimately been the accepted solution for database migrations, where you have a you have a stateful environment. You have the schema. 
in SQL Server and you have live data, so you can't take it offline. You, you have to change it in place in some cases or provisioning it from scratch. And along the way, we need to incrementally add a change and add a change and add right. a change and deterministically from source control run through a series of environment upgrades, just like in the database world with database migrations, the accepted solution is run through a set of source-controlled database schema upgrades. And that's worked really well. And, and so mm. um, I, I think that concept in whatever implementation may be where we end up on the infrastructure side because it just, it's just makes it so simple. Yeah, I just think that the the database is the tricky bit, and I tend to want to do it independently of the app updates. Like you want to prep the database before the app update, then you want to up, uh, do the app update so it runs fine, and then there's kind of a post step where you now clean up the database now that you've moved everybody to the new version. Right, right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Raygun Pulse. You know about Raygun, that error in crash reporting software. Well, they've just launched Pulse. It's a real user monitoring product that gives you real-time performance data and user insights, letting you understand exactly what's happening when users interact with your software. Never be left guessing. Raygun provides you with the answers to your performance questions. Having found over 10 billion bugs in customer apps with their crash reporting product, Raygun now lets you understand application quality like no one else. Over 30,000 developers worldwide can't be wrong. Try it out today with a no-risk 30-day free trial. Check them out at raygun.io. You know, you guys asked um, continuous delivery and how long, are we, how many times per day and per week are we going to deploy. I, I, I want to come back to the, the notion of continuous delivery versus continuous deployment. Um, now, uh, we have, from a strategic perspective, decided to base all of our work on the continuous delivery book that was written by Jez Humble. And it's, I think it's largely been accepted as the definition of continuous delivery. It's, you know, it's a, it's a very thick and heavy white paper, if you will. Um, and, and I really haven't seen anything that comes close to its level of, of, sophistication on covering just the whole topic. Of course, it doesn't provide any implementation insight because it tries to be platform agnostic. So in the Microsoft space, great. We've got this, we got this book that says here's eight principles for continuous delivery, and we got four technical practices of continuous delivery. But how does that translate into what technologies and tools to piece together to actually make an implementation for .NET applications? And so that's right. what we kind of developing and and he, he goes into detail about describing and promoting continuous delivery rather than continuous deployment facebook for instance does continuous deployment if it gets all the way through it gets into production without you know this meeting there are to determine no gates. If, exactly exactly continuous deployment is 100 percent automated unless a test fails or a validation fails and blocks that particular revision whereas continuous delivery um, backs off from that and allows for the organization to have some manual steps depending on what the release process needs to be and for us it seems that all of our clients uh really want to be able to just have a quick call or, or a meeting or a conversation and just give the thumbs up and be explicit about, okay, we like it, 
we've been poking around and staging. Roll it out. We've, exactly. They they just they just want to be able to have an approval step, and so what, what we implemented is essentially continuous deployment minus full automation. Just the addition of an approval step roll, pulls it back from continuous deployment into this shade of gray, which is continuous delivery, but. Every technical piece is 100% automated except for the client's approval. And if the client prefers to perform any exploratory tests for themselves to make them feel comfortable. So that's sort of the balance that we've struck. Because I'm hoping that part of your entire process here includes some forms of testing. Oh, oh, (laughs) absolutely. You have to. You have to. Um yeah, continuous. Uh, well, and, and I'd love to go through go through the whole pipeline. Um, I hope you will. Could, all right. So the the eight principles in continuous delivery. Again, it's in the Judd's Humble Book. The eight principles are uh, one: the release process must be repeatable and reliable. The whole, in other words, the whole organization must agree on what the steps are to get a new release into production. So, for a particular piece of software. What types of tests must we perform on this? Um, what types of security checks? What level of performance must be validated? What, um, what level of scale must be maintained? Uh, just the whole organization must agree and have a repeatable and reliable process, including everything necessary. Even, and and this, this goes to just modeling the, the value stream of what it takes to release software regardless of how much of it you're going to automate. And hopefully people are doing this anyway, even if everything is manual. It's just old, old, uh, it's just process. And then the second one, which makes continuous delivery unique, is literally, quote, automate everything. That's the second principle. <laughs> automate everything. Now, except for you know, a client approval step. Uh, number three is if something is difficult, do it more. And of course, this fights against the corollary of, oh, this is difficult. Let's just put it to the side and let this be a manual step. So if something is difficult, do it more, and then we'll understand it enough to be able to automate it. Um, And then once it's automated, it really doesn't matter how difficult it was. Now the computer's doing it instead of a human. The fourth principle is keep everything in source control. And, and, And this means... Everything absolutely possible. Uh, now there are some exceptions like passwords, API keys, different you know security uh, credentials that shouldn't be shared. Um, but there's there's solutions for that. So everything in source control is every script, every test, every database change, every um, server configuration change. For instance, if there's a new, I don't know, I'm pulling this out of thin air. If there's a new path. Uh, that needs to be added to the um, to the Windows path on the server because of some new feature that's coming in a Windows Server job, and this is more prevalent in legacy code, but we work a lot with that. Then, then there needs to be a script which which it literally is upgrading the environment to the new path variable so that this new thing can function when that Windows service is running on the server and the Windows service would fail if we didn't upgrade that piece of the environment. So it doesn't have to be significant, like install some big new thing on the server. It's just whatever change is necessary. What you don't want to do is have a process where someone has to remote desktop into a server, twiddle a little thing, and then conveniently be in a hurry and, of course, not document it. Uh, (laughs) And then now we have, again, a server that has to be treated like a pet because... 
nobody really knows how to recreate it because somebody went into the registry or the path or some some area and changed something that's not standard. But if we put it in source control, now it's documented, now it's versioned, and it's referenced and executed from a script. So it's literally keep everything in source control. Um, one of the caveats in using uh, a high-performance build server, whether it's whether it's JetBrains, TeamCity, whether it's um, Visual Studio, what's the new name? Team Services. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They have they have build steps and build renders for everything. But what you can end up with is the entire script orchestration being maintained in the build server itself and not in your source control repository. So you need to t- people doing this need to take care to use the feature on the build server technology of choice that pulls the build server configuration from a place in source control. And in, you know, in TeamCity, it's just a checkbox to essentially pull the configuration from a, a known path in source control versus configuring it directly in, in the tool. Mm-hmm. Um, the fifth principle of continuous delivery is that done means released. Done doesn't mean, hey, it's working in a demo environment or it passed initial acceptance tests or it's in UAT done means it's in production if you don't do that then you end up piling up a whole lot of inventory and using lean software development speak inventory is waste and if we have a whole bunch of features piled up in a UAT or a staging environment well that's just as good as hey I showed it to somebody but the business still isn't getting any return on their investment. So done means that it's released and it's being used in production. The sixth principle of continuous delivery is build quality in. It's, we're, we're designing this deployment pipeline and we're, we're identifying what are all the stages necessary. So as a software release gets initially built in the continuous integration commit stage and then moves on to a acceptance test stage and then moves on beyond that and whatever number of environments, as it moves from environment to environment, with each successive environment having a set of validating tests, as a release moves through, it is known to be of higher of higher known quality. And at any point in time, something could go wrong. Some validation, some check, some test could fail and eliminate that release from viability or qualification for moving forward into production. Mm. And when something does get to production that has a problem and there's some production issue and you have to hot fix or you have to do something build quality. And the mindset of building quality in is don't just fix it in production and then move on. Realize that there was a defect, not just in the software, there was a defect in your continuous delivery pipeline itself because it allowed a problem to get all the way to production. And so so just like the test-driven development mantra of in, not just red-green refactor, but in test-driven development, if there's a bug in the software, you not only fix the bug, but in order to fix the bug, you create a failing test to identify the bug and to reproduce the bug in an automated fashion. Then you fix the bug. You see that test pass, and now your bug is actually fixed while at the same time guaranteeing that that type of bug will not resurface because you have an automated test covering it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the same thing with your continuous delivery pipeline. It is a piece of orchestration software. It is in total, essentially middleware. It is a set of scripts that operates on your piece of custom software. And if something gets to production, if a problem gets through to production, you have found a bug in your continuous delivery 
middleware as, as a concept. And, and so the concept is go back and fix where it was so that you could rerun that same build of software through and see that it is now stopped so that your build, every time you find a problem, you guarantee that that class of problem won't happen again. Right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to... Uh, oh, hang on, hang on a second. Take a phone call? Uh, hello? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. This is Mr. Franklin. I ordered a large pepperoni over an hour ago and uh, I'm sitting here with... You what? What do you mean? <sighs> All right. Well, sorry, guys. I thought I was going to eat lunch today, but the pizzeria doesn't have continuous delivery. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. really, that's because the continuous <laughs> deployment part of that would be it putting in your face right <laughs> no approval step eat it <laughs> no gates no stops pizza right to the face 34 times a day <laughs> I've been pied. Uh, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, do you know Swift, Objective-C, and Java? Can you use them in tools like Xcode and Android Studio? If so, awesome. For everyone else, there's NativeScript, a cross-platform framework for building native iOS and Android apps using skills you already have. JavaScript or TypeScript, CSS, and a XAML-like XML markup. Build the mobile apps you've always wanted to build. Use the NativeScript CLI for free, or use NativeScript inside of Visual Studio with a Telerik platform subscription, which enables you to build iOS apps without the glowing Apple. Get started for free at nativescript.org. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Wolfgang Loader. Congratulations, Wolfgang. Golf yeah. clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Wolfgang, who just won the Telerik DevCraft collection, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Telerik. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. Jeff, it's your turn. Yes, sir. What are you going to buy with five grand? I am going to buy a fleet of electric four-wheelers, go-karts, and motorcycles. Um, in fact, I just bought the first first uh, electric four-wheeler for my three-year-old daughter, it is pink. It's a it's a Razor off road quad. It goes ten miles an hour. But um, after the show, I'm heading to Radio Shack to get a potentiometer to amp down the, the the voltage from the throttle to limit it to power wheel speed so that she can learn it. Are you planning on taking over a national wildlife refuge anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> well, in three months, we're moving from our from our neighborhood with no yard to our to our ranch where the kids can just roam and so you know we need some fun toys because and you're in texas you got to have a ranch and so now the you electric need, yeah now you need a way to get from one end to the rent of the ranch to the other you know if you're a kid right and it, this technology is amazing i'm just floored with all the electric vehicles and all it's coming out it's just i'm i'm loving it awesome well that's cool <laughs> that's cool and where would you get such things 
So, um, Walmart uh, sells the Razor Off-Road Quad, mm-hmm. and it's meant for you know ages three years to eight years. Uh, Target sells it. Amazon.com, obviously, and mm-hmm. they're on, they're about four hundred. Just a few hundred dollars. Yeah, Razor also sells the the M- MX650 um, off-road motorcycle, and it's all electric, and it can go up to seventeen miles an hour and um, up to middle school age. So it's they're not quite for adults; they're for kids. Um, and then there's some other vendors selling uh, like a thousand a thousand watt um, one seater go kart that can go up to twenty something miles an hour. And uh, now battery life is always you know they're still improving battery quality, but compared to um, I mean we've got we've got a five person family we've got five gas powered dirt bikes and just the maintenance difference you know <laughs> for for the kids stuff. Uh, the electric stuff just seems so convenient. Okay. Yeah, those look like a lot of fun. And you're right. You would end up with a, with this price is you'd have a fleet of them. That's right. That's right. And they're just waiting to be automated. You know, <laughs> I let my kid go out and ride, but when I want him back, I just grab the RC controller and bring him back. <laughs> so let's talk in in more specific detail about the kinds of things that you can do in Azure that would have been more difficult to do in the continuous delivery realm have, had you not been using the cloud. Or even sure. been using Azure. Sure. So the way we have uh, the way we have it set up is we we set up a VM that is our that has JetBrains, TeamCity, and Octopus Deploy running on it. And that's sort of our build and deploy server that's in the Azure subscription. Okay. And from a from an Azure subscription perspective, um, we try to keep each system in a separate subscription. Um, the 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 different segmentation within a subscription just isn't quite there yet. I think there's plans to make better segmenting so that you can have an organization-wide subscription and have some good separation. But for, for now, we have multiple subscriptions and we just have you know one major system. All the stuff is in is in one of those. So we have um, that deployed there. And interestingly enough, our setup is very similar to the Microsoft NuGet team. Right. Um, how they have their setup where our source control is in GitHub. And, and actually, Charlie Nurse on the NuGet team did a, a, a YouTube webinar on um, deploying NuGet.org with TeamCity and Octopus Deploy. Wow. So that's, that's out there. And it's very similar to that. But we have, we have one machine for build and deploy, those two pieces of software. Then we spin up um, more VMs for each environment. Um, we have a standard, even without special needs for a particular system, we have a test environment, and that is a scaled-down version of what's needed for the particular system. Then we have a staging environment, which is exactly like production, and it also serves as the user acceptance test function, Mm -hmm. which is where the client can get on there and run through their paces, and it's got... It's got um, production-like data, except for sensitive information. Sensitive information is scrubbed or you know anonymized or whatnot, mm-hmm. and then and then production. And so with Azure, it is so simple, and especially with the new resource manager model, it is so simple to just create the environments. And so we we, we lay all those out, and then we have one additional uh, test server that is the launching pad for all of the different full system tests against the test environment mm-hmm. and then the more tracer bullet like or um, smoke test against the staging environment. And so without, without Azure, if we're back in VMware Hyper-V, 
um, there's there's less uh, less automation. Um, you you click around more, and it just takes longer. And uh, because the way those products are managed, not not that technically they're different, but there's always an owner of mm-hmm. the VMware or the Hyper-V cluster. Mm-hmm. And so there's always an approval step to create or change any VM. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Azure, there's a budget. There's a dollar budget. And the people who need it, do it. Because the guidelines are the budget, not somebody that owns the VMware cluster having to approve and do it because they won't give anybody access. Yeah. So so not that not that technically VMware or Hyper-V couldn't be like this, but it just isn't. It greases the wheels. It totally yeah. does. Yeah. It totally does. And so the Team City build server on the commit stage, which is the first stage, uh, we build the artifacts, in other words, we we compile, we spin up a um, SQL Server database from scratch that has no data in it except for basic just configuration tables like you know states of the country table you know yeah. populated from scratch and stuff yep. like that yep. and do the unit tests and component level integration tests that happens in the commit stage and again all these stages are defined in the continuous delivery book it's all outlined it's just um, we've figured out the Microsoft stack of things to make it to to make it go. Um, and that's what we call a successful continuous integration build. At the end of that build, we have a set of NuGet packages that represent each process. So if we have, for instance, in the, in the sample code that we're distributing with the show, it's a very simple application. It was meant so, so that uh, we don't have concepts you know, smashing each other. There's only a website. And there's a three-page website. It's a very simple expense reporting app and a SQL Server database. We don't even have a batch job. But if you did have a batch job, that would be an additional process that needed to be deployed. And so what Octopus deployed us for us is allow the msbuild.exe compile step to package up the results of the compilation of that particular project into a NuGet package, which is a sem- essentially a zip file with a manifest. Um, and Team City snatches those files and stores them as release artifacts at the end of the continuous integration build. Then we have Team City set up with a four stage build chain that models our series of environments, and it, it automatically triggers the next the next build step, which is, we call it deploy to test. And that stage, Team City has an automatic integration with Octopus Deploy through an add-in, and it, it tells Octopus Deploy, hey, deploy release number such and such to your environment that's called test. And so only Octopus Deploy knows what the names of the servers are and how to get to them. And there's a, uh, there's a little Octopus Deploy, they call it a tentacle. It's a little tiny program that you install in all your destination servers to facilitate the orchestration. Um, I think it was what, uh, what the web deploy tool was supposed to be in, in spirit. Right. And, 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 and it may still be at some point you know, in a future release. Um, so the test, uh, the test deployment... It deploys the database, again, upgrades the schema. It deploys the website. And if you had batch jobs, it would deploy the batch jobs. It would configure um, permissions, application pools. Um, all that stuff is built into uh, Octopus Deploy. Octopus Deploy comes with a library of scripts and integrations for deploying .NET applications. 
So Octopus Deploy is a .NET specific deployment tool, and it has all the different things. Oh, you have a website? Well, how do you want this application right. tool configured, or this thing and that thing? And it just knows what all the surface area of .NET applications are. Yeah, I've been impressed with it. And it's important in the test environment to run fully automated, full system acceptance tests. These are essentially, if you were to think, hey, how am I going to manually test that this whole application does what it's supposed to do? Well, you take the exact same set of human actions and automate it into an, an, an automated test run through NUnit or XUnit or MS test or, or any of those. Our, we've been using NUnit for years, and so um, that's just what we use. But the full system tests are, again, that's a type of test that still don't come for free. Even the Visual Studio Ultimate, or now Enterprise, that has the recorded test and coded tests, um, it has the infrastructure to be able to talk to the user interfaces. However, it still requires it still requires an architect to design this type of test because mm. for, an, for an acceptance test to work, you need the test itself, which should be written in the business language. In other words, Log in as Fred. Submit his expense report mm. with $56 to manager so-and-so, and then um, log out. Then log in as Susan, who is the manager. Go and verify this right. expense report is there. Um, reject expense report with message you are a bum. I didn't approve this. <laughs> then log out. The, you know, I mean, just whatever the orchestration would be to verify that this thing actually works. And it, it, the test needs to read like a business language instead of click on button with ID, BTN, blah, 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 mm -hmm. yeah. the technical language. Right. Um, and so the test has to be written like that. And so we still have to have some layering in our tests so that we have a window driver, um, a window driver layer that translates from Selenium or Watton, or whatever the technology that actually pokes the browser's DOM or the Java or runs the little JavaScript integration and, and has that abstracted away from the actual test, which should read so that any test analyst can make sense of what it's doing. If the test reads like um, document.get element by ID, blah, 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 right, sure. dot click, then those tests are just Greek. Yep. They're not going to be maintained. And what the hell is that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's still difficult. And, and the tooling in the frameworks, you still, an architect is still going to have to design that. Now there, there's, you know, there's, there's guidance in the continuous delivery book for that, but it's, you don't get it for free. So that is one thing that somebody has to think about and design for a particular application. But it's really, really important that you have that type of testing because that's your functional testing. That's, if you're talking about sure. acceptance criteria of a story, if you're doing Agile, all it's talking about is, is a use case. It's when I go and do this sets of things, this is what I expect the system will do. Mm. Okay, am I going to manually test that? Or am I going to find out a way for the computer to run through those steps and make sure that it functionally actually works? Yeah, very good. And how do you measure that effectively? I mean, this is the challenge of testing. Right. I, I will say in playing with automated testing with a couple of customers now, uh, we had a test suite built up. These are for websites that literally ran for several hours. And yeah. we really perfected the whole configuration as code 
for the testing process because we would break the test down into chunks so that each test block ran in under 10 minutes. And we just light up tons of VMs to run everything in parallel. And then right. we could consolidate all the results back at the end. But if you don't have an automated process for setting up the website with a test data and, and running it, it's impossible. Once you get it right, it's kind of magical. Totally. And, and you know, you it sounds like your the, the team did something brilliant in getting it down to a, a small amount by just putting a whole bunch of computers in there and, and segmenting it. But a three-hour acceptance test process is not something... It, it's actually it's something horrible. to celebrate because most people don't have anything and their test cycle is a week or longer. So yeah, manual. Getting, yeah, manual. So any length of time in an automated fashion is a step in the right direction. Even if you have to, even if you have to come back the next day, um, it, it's, it's going to be faster than manual. And then you can incrementally figure out like, like you did how to trim away the time and what, what can we do to parallelize it? Yeah. Once it's automated, then it can be sped up. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's really important. And that's, and that's the functional tests. And then, and then we have to think about, okay, what's the shape of this system and what are the constraints of this system? How many users do I need? And so think about all the different, pick up one of the, old testing books that talks about what are all the different types of testing? Okay, well, yeah, you have functional testing, but then there's in, then there's endurance testing. There is, that is, if I run this application, is it going to work fine? And then a month from now, it's just going to crash because after some number of transactions, some table gets so full that we were doing a select all from <laughs> on one particular screen and now select all is just a huge amount mm. of data. So endurance testing is, you know, that's crazy to do a select all, right? <laughs> well, everybody knows. <laughs> I know crazy. that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just However, kidding. Well, well exactly. <laughs> but, but, but people make assumptions. Yeah, if yeah. there's a table for the States in the United States, how many developers would just do a select all because of the assumption that we'll only ever have 50 records. Right. Right. And, and you know what? A lot of times they're right, and that's why they do it because they've been right so many times. Yeah. But then that Only one once. time <laughs> that they make the assumption, or yeah. So anyway, the, the endurance testing is just I want to I want to throw as many transactions. This is not you know load or performance testing. This is just let me run through a lot of normal transactions and see if there is a point in time when this just thing when this thing falls over. Because otherwise, we go to production with something new, and it could be one month, it could be two months, but uh, sooner or later, the number of transactions it can handle, there was some problem that surfaces after some number of transactions, and then you got a problem and it's a crisis in production. Mm. So, so that's endurance testing. Um, th- we ha- you know, you've got performance testing, is certain things fast enough. Then you got scalability testing. In other words, when I have some amount of load on the system, are the normal things fast enough within some thresholds? And depending on your system, you know, any number of types of is security penetration tests might be appropriate to automate for some class of systems. Mm-hmm. And, and so you just have to think about what is my release process and what types or what classes of tests must I perform and put together a series of test suites that you figure out how to automate and then piece it all together. I'm a big believer in webpagetest.org. Yeah, love they it. They actually have an API so you could, and what it'll do is like hit your pages from far away places for you. 
So you can, you know, you can actually evaluate, well, a great, it renders great on my LAN. Does it render great in my city? Does it render great in India? Mm, and, yeah. and you can automate that entire thing and actually have those results as part of your routine test run. Totally. Yeah, very cool place. You know, Richard, I think we need to rename this show to Jeffrey Palermo Delivers Bulletproof Software. <laughs> you covered a lot more than continuous delivery in Azure. But, it, you know, continuous delivery includes an awful lot of testing. And almost you almost just do hours on testing alone. Yeah. A lot of the other, because it's the hard part in a lot of ways. It's like, do you know this software is valid enough to deliver? Right. It all goes together, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And um, the Kansas City Developer Conference is going to be in June. And um, and I'm giving a multi-hour workshop on this. And I'm, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. Because, um, I mean, for our clients, we've got a three-day training course on this. And we still don't cover everything. Because it's the umbrella over the entire process. It's not just a, It's not just an individual Lego. Right. Yeah. I think we did KCDC once, didn't we? Isn't that Lee Brandt's show? It is. It's huge. <laughs> great show, too. Yeah, great show. All right. Well, what's next for you, Jeff? Uh, well, um, I've got a schedule um, all year of stacked you know, local conferences and mm-hmm. speaking gigs. It's, it's all the same topic. Um, and here in Austin, there's a Keeping Austin Agile conference and uh, I've named the topic modern architecture, but it's all the same stuff. It's what is modern software engineering and modern architecture and pulling all these techniques in. Um, but uh, so it, we're just, we're, we're figuring out better and better ways to do this here at clear measure. And then when we think we figured out something well, where it's, Oh yeah, we did this the same way on this client. We just plugged in and it saved us so much time. Um, I, I just like to figure out a way to release something open source so other mm-hmm. people can just, I want them to be able to download and use, and we're not, we're not selling this. That's not our business. It's just, um, just like, uh, the old, I've stopped talking about it now because Robert Martin picked it up with clean architecture, but I used to talk about onion architecture all the time and how to mm-hmm. isolate dependencies in a visual studio solution. Mm-hmm. And I had a template for, Hey, here's, here's a way to do it. Just drop this in. And mm-hmm. I found people in Ohio and, and in Chicago and everywhere who were just using this thing and sending back questions. So it helped people. Right. And, and now clean architecture is sort of the same thing from Robert Martin. So I, I point people to that, but mm. um, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's what can get people going as quickly as possible without having to figure out how to like all the solid principles. It's like all these sure. good principles. How do you do it inside visual studio? Right. Give me a working example. And it's not Microsoft pet shop. Yep. Certainly. All right. We're going to leave it there. Jeff Palermo. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. Hey, it was great to be with you again. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com 
for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a